Thank you, Ethan, and thank you, Gary, and good morning, Wilshire. We're glad that you're here today and starting your week with us. Um, good morning to our visitors, to our friends and neighbors online. It's an important thing to start your week in worship, isn't it? To remind ourselves of God's love and God's mission and God's call for our lives and for the week ahead. So thank you for being here and sharing worship with us today. Jim is out of town today. We are sharing Jim with Burleson, Texas. Um, so as I always tell people, when you go preach in Texas, you have to stop and be baptized in the Red River on your way back through. That's why it's the Red River. <clears throat> so uh, pray for Jim and Yodi and their trip and his ministry down there. I'm glad he gets to be down there. Well, if you have your Bible, I want to invite you to join me in 1 Peter chapter 2 this morning. Today's sermon is one of those that should probably come with a warning label. Because there is a very good chance I'm going to say something with which you will disagree. And I want you to know, I still love you. The way we choose our text, I really appreciate it, Wilshire. Most of our preaching is through a text. So Jim stands up and Jim says, Jeremy and I are going to begin preaching through 1 Peter. And so when Jim's out of town and I take the text, it's wherever we're at in that sermon series. So it's not as if we see an issue out there and say, I want to preach on that issue, so I'm going to hunt for the text. Rather, we say we want to speak from the text and we'll let the issues come as the text brings them. Such is the case with this morning's sermon. There's a good chance that someone in the audience is not going to like today's text. And there is a good chance that someone sitting in the audience is going to think that I'm trying to make some political statement against or for some political party. And there is a good chance that some of you are going to walk away today saying, I wish they would not talk about those things at church. I come to church to get away from those things. So let's begin like this. If you're committed more to Jesus Christ than you are the Republican Party, will you say amen? Boy, that was sadly weak. If you're more committed to Christ than you are the Democratic Party, will you please say amen? If you are more committed to Christ than you are the American political system, will you say amen? amen. So now you can't be mad at me. <laughs> so now that you've said that, listen to these words. Submit yourself for the Lord's sake to every human authority, whether to the emperor or the supreme, uh, as the supreme authority, or to governors who are sent by him to punish those who do wrong and commend those who do right. For it is God's will that by doing good you should silence the ignorant talk of foolish people. Live as free people, but do not let your freedom be a cover-up for evil. Live as God's slaves. Show proper respect to everyone. Love the family of believers, fear God, and honor the emperor. How does that make you feel? 
What do you think of those words? It may be that you're just fine with me preaching from this text now that we have the administration and power that we do. But how would these words have sounded in the previous administration? I wish we could tell you that Peter had some footnotes to his message. That this only applies when the guy you voted for or the woman you voted for was in office. Peter didn't say that. Or this only applies when you agree with the policies and the procedures being implemented. Peter didn't say that. Or void if angry or mistreated. Peter doesn't say that either. Peter didn't insert any of those footnotes. Peter said, submit yourself for the Lord's sake to every human authority. Well, we have a tendency to read these texts in search of God's design for government. And so we poke through 1 Peter 2 and other texts in your New Testament to find out what is the role of government and what does God expect from government. And you'll find lots of texts, or several texts. You'll find this one, Romans chapter 13. Let everyone be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except that which God established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. Well, I don't like that one. Now let's try another one. Titus chapter 3 and verse 1. Remind people to be subject to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready to do whatever is good. Well, that one doesn't make me feel comfortable either. And we take these texts and we try to wrestle them into a theology of government so that we can speak into our current political system and say, this is what the government is supposed to be doing. And the challenge of that is it doesn't really make a lot of sense sometimes. Remember when Jesus stood in front of Pilate? And Pilate was told, you would have no authority except that it was given to you by God. You mean God put Pilate where he was? That's what Jesus said. Romans 13 says that, that there is no authority except that which God has established. And then you go wandering through your Old Testament and you find story after story of these puzzling texts that Israel in 722 B.C. was destroyed by the Assyrians led by King Sargon, whom the writer of Kings says God raised up. Or there's 687 when when Babylon marches into Jerusalem and annihilates it under King Nebuchadnezzar, whom the Bible says God raised up. Does that confuse you? It does me a little bit. It did Habakkuk. Because Habakkuk begins his prophetic book by saying, God, where are you? What are you doing? How long are you going to let this happen? And God says, in essence, oh, you haven't seen anything yet. I'm going to raise up the Chaldeans. And Habakkuk says, but you're too holy to do that. God doesn't always ask me what my vote is. When we read texts like this, like 1 Peter 2, our temptation is to go into a theology of God's expectation of government. But that's not what Peter is doing in 1 Peter 2. 
Peter is saying here is your responsibility. Here's how you're supposed to react. Here's what you are supposed to do. It is true God puts leaders in place and God has definite expectations of leaders and God will have will hold these leaders accountable for how they carry out their role. But Peter says, I'm not talking to them. I'm talking to you. The message of these texts are geared to how you and I are to live in relation to the powers around us. And it may help us to stop and think why Peter is even having this conversation with this church. Now, Jim has mentioned this, but we need to keep reminding ourselves of this. Listen to the way the book of 1 Peter starts. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 1. To God's elect, exiles scattered throughout the province of Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. Underline or circle in your Bible the word exile. These Christians are displaced people. He says it again, 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 7, Since you call on a father who judges every person's work impartially, live out your time as foreigners here in reverent fear. You're foreigners. You're not from around here. Or again in 1 Peter 2.11, Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from the sinful desires which wage war against your soul. Peter is writing this book to a young church filled with young Christians who were trying to navigate their faith in a culture surrounding them that didn't care about them and who didn't share their faith. How do you live in that world? How do you stay faithful to Jesus in that context? And how do we open doors to share the gospel and live the gospel with others around us? And Peter is keenly aware of the struggles and the problems and the challenges that they are facing. Chapter 4 and verse 12. Dear friends, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal that has come on you to test you as though something strange were happening. So what do you do? What do you do when you can't get a job because you believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God? What do you believe when the guilds that you are a member of will not let you be a part of those? Because you believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. What do you do if you work in a household where the, where the master, it's a different context than American slavery, but nonetheless, when the master of the house says, you cannot believe that Jesus is the Son of God and have any privilege in this house. What do you do when friends mock you because you believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God? What do you do when government officials threaten you when you believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. How do you respond to that? Well, there were some Christians, I guess, that were tempted to say, well, you know what? I'm a disciple of Jesus Christ. I don't have to listen to you. I don't have to do anything you tell me to. I'm a citizen of a different kingdom. And I'll do whatever I want, and I'll stand up to you, and I'll push back if you push me. 
There were other Christians who said, let's just get along. It won't hurt if we compromise or it won't hurt if we just, you know, we can offer the sacrifices. But in our heart, we really don't believe that. It won't hurt if we, if we just don't talk about Jesus. Just go along to get along. What would you say to a young Christian community living in that world? In Peter's context, he gives this conclusion. You are free, but don't use that freedom to do evil. You see, Peter is saying, my commitment to Christ must be greater than my commitment to country or king. You are free. Jesus sets you free. And you have to answer to God, but not that king or emperor or governor. But that does not give you license to be disrespectful, dishonest, or evil in return. The purpose of the gospel always trumps any national or personal commitment. Every single time. And Peter is telling this community that injustice never justifies further injustice. Never. Well, Peter, don't you know what they've said? Don't you know who you are? Well, Peter, don't you know what this would mean? Don't you know what Jesus did? Injustice never justifies further injustice. You are committed to Jesus Christ, period. And whatever you say, and whatever you do, and however you respond, and whatever you claim, and whatever you argue is filtered through Jesus Christ, period. Yeah, but Peter, you don't understand what it's like today. Peter begs to differ. When Peter wrote these words in 1 Peter, they were living under the reign of Nero. Nero was the emperor who would eventually order Peter's death. Nero is the emperor who historians have traditionally said was responsible for burning parts of Rome so that he could have a building project and clear some land. And when there was political pushback, Nero said it was the Christians who did that. They're often speaking of some fiery end. They set the fire. Nero is the man whom historians say took Christians to the lion's den and burned them at the stake and would even suggest and would even light their bodies on fire and hang them in his gardens for his evening walks. What were you going to say about Peter not understanding? Well, yeah, but, but Peter, don't you know, they're making us bake cakes for people's lifestyle we don't agree with. Are you going to the lions? Well, Peter, they won't let us say Merry Christmas. Well, Peter, they're making us have books in school we don't agree with. 
Now, I'm not suggesting those aren't items to be concerned and worried about in our new context and culture, but we dare not. We dare not read 1 Peter and think Peter didn't understand. We have brothers and sisters in this room today who know exactly the sort of thing Peter was talking about. Andrew and Naget were forced to leave Sudan and the Mount Nuba area because of war. Pauline Kume and her family had to flee and lived in a concentrate or lived in a refugee camp. They have seen injustice and they have seen death and destruction firsthand. We live in a lot different setting than the people of Peter's day. We have a say in the people who represent us. And I think it's a blessing of God that we can go down and we can vote. We have a recourse when we have been wronged. And I think that as long as we keep that within the bounds of what Peter said, then we as God's people should use the voice he has given us and use it responsibly and respectfully. Some of the greatest advancements for justice and peace in our culture has happened because of civil disobedience that found the balance between honor and respect and refusal to budge on matters of justice. But Peter's words are still true. Peter still calls us to respect all governing authorities. I'm pretty confident I know what Peter didn't mean. Since 1970 in the United States, there have been at least 11 murders, 42 bombings, 196 arsons, and 491 assaults against abortion providers. I do not like abortion. But that's no way to deal with it. On January 6, 2021, several protesters surrounded the United States Capitol and assaulted police, unlawfully entered buildings, threatened political leaders of both parties, and the same thing recently happened in Brazil. In the case of the U.S. Capitol, a lot of people were carrying religious signs and symbols and flags. Some of them were even carrying Bibles. What would have happened if someone dared open 1 Peter 2 and read Peter's words on that day? I'm pretty sure that's not what Peter had in mind. In the summer of May 2020, the death of George Floyd in Ahmaud Arbery sent millions of protesters to the street, most of which were peaceful. But there were some who took the opportunity for violence and clashes against police and threats of violence, destruction of parties, uh, of property, and chanted, no justice, no peace. That is no biblical theology. I wonder how Peter's words would sound in that context. But while things are different today, Peter's words are just as true. How we speak of people and leaders with whom we disagree, 
says everything about the Lord that we follow. How we interact with people whose ideas contradict our deeply held faith says everything about the Jesus we proclaim. And what we choose to use our influence and our efforts to advance is everything about whether the the cross of Christ shapes our life or not. Here's why Peter says it matters. It is God's will that by doing good, you will silence the ignorant talk of foolish people. What are we doing to bring about the goodness of creation? Are we able to faithfully speak about the good in people we usually disagree with? Are we able to faithfully speak about the sins of people we typically agree with? Because God calls us to consistency shaped by Jesus Christ. And when Peter talks about doing good, I don't think he's just dangling out there some philosophical concept. I think what Peter means is doing good. You know, Christians are responsible for the earliest hospital systems. Christians were known for rescuing babies thrown out on the ash heap because they were the wrong gender. Christians have been known for ages for caring for the poor and the homeless. Christians were largely responsible for the movement to end slavery. By doing good, you will silence the ignorant and foolish people. Which raises the question, what are we known for? When people think of the church, when people think of Christianity, what are we known for? Can I be honest with you? I'm sick and tired of hearing people talk about the evangelical Christian community as a voting block. We are the people of God. We're not here to sustain any political system. We are here to bring about the kingdom of God on earth as it is in heaven. Are we more known for our political positions and our search for power? For our voting patterns? Or for being the ones to respond in a natural crisis? For being the ones to feed the hunger while Congress argues over how government dollars should be spent? For feeding and clothing those in need while politicians posture, the church moves. And the hardest part about all of this is just when I see in Peter's words maybe a glimpse of it doesn't apply to me. That yeah, but Peter comes along and he says, let me illustrate my point. Let me, let me show you exactly what this looks like in action. Jesus was sinless. And he was despised and he was rejected And he did not fight back. And because of Jesus' commitment to God was greater than his commitment to his government or to his social standing, 
He was faithful to God, and because of his faithfulness, he has left us an example. Boy, had Peter not finished with that one, we may have had a way out. But what Peter is saying is, your commitment to Jesus should trump any other commitment. Never do anything to give anyone a plausible reason to doubt the story of the gospel of Jesus. Never give anyone a justifiable reason to say, see, they really don't believe in a crucified, buried Messiah. Don't give an opening. That's why Peter writes to this young Christian community. He says, I know it's going to be hard. I know people are going to persecute you. I know you're going to be mistreated and outcast, but you cannot let that change how you live out the gospel of Jesus Christ. Don't let that tarnish who God calls you to be. You be respectful, even with people who, who reject the deepest held belief of our faith. You honor those even when they dishonor you. And you never, ever compromise your commitment to God. There's a prominent figure in the American religious scene who got chased out of his denominational structure for his refusal to take a position in the last political contest. He gave a speech that I thought was quite interesting. Here's something of what he said. If people reject the church because they reject Jesus and the gospel, we should be saddened but not surprised. But what happens when people reject the church because they think we reject Jesus and the gospel? People have always left the church because they want to gratify the flesh. But what happens when people leave because they believe the church exists to gratify the flesh? That's a far different problem. What if people don't leave the church because they disapprove of Jesus, but because they've read the Bible and they have come to the conclusion that the church itself would disprove of Jesus? That's a crisis. I think he has a point. I told you, I didn't pick this text. And I'm not going to tell you that I have all the answers to all the questions running through your mind that you're just dying to come ask me after the sermon. So let's end where we started. If you're more committed to Jesus Christ than you are the Republican Party, would you say amen? If you're more committed to Christ than you are to the Democratic Party, would you say amen? If you're more committed to Christ than you are the American political system, would you say amen? No matter what else we disagree on, brothers and sisters, we cannot disagree on that. Submit yourselves to the Lord, to every human authority, whether the emperor as the supreme authority, or to governors who are sent by him to punish those who do wrong and to commend those who do right. For it is God's will that by doing good, 
you would silence the ignorant talk of foolish people. God, give us the strength to be that faithful wherever we are. I'm going to offer the invitation of Jesus Christ. Peter ends this talk, this section of 1 Peter, by reminding us that they rejected Jesus, who was completely innocent, who when they hurled insults at him, he did not return in kind. And Peter says, because with his stripes, we are healed. That's the invitation to which God invites us this morning. If you need to put Jesus on in baptism, or if you need to give your life back to God this morning, we invite you to come while together we stand and sing.